IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about new albums by Wilco and Animal Collective, and a big moment for mid-80s alternative rock. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He's been sharing early drafts of his songs with Lin-Manuel Miranda for 10 years. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Steve, can I ask you a personal question before we get going? Of course. I'm gonna open when did you and your wife first start dating? Uh, 06. Okay, so uh, I, I asked this because, you know, if you've been dating since 2006, you've never had the... Ex- okay, so we've, we've tiptoed around... Our opinions on Beyonce, on Taylor Swift, on, you know, many artists which are general, like, big consensus artists. I can tell you that I've never had to more lightly tiptoe around a pop culture phenomenon in dating and in the workplace than I have with Hamilton. I cannot think of anything that's gone more wrong than when I've, you know, shared even like a Mosley, yeah, it's not for me type opinion. So... I just want to say, like, we are treading on dangerous ground here if we're if we're gonna make LMM jokes. <laughs> so, like, is your wife a a Hamilton fan? You know what? I did watch. Uh, I think this might have been pandemic. It was 2019 or 2020. Um, we did watch when Disney. I think it was Disney Plus showed um, a recorded version of it. You know, I okay. See, I don't. I'm in a relationship where my wife also can't stand Hamilton. Oh, so I don't have to worry about that. I, <laughs> we're actually pretty simpatico on a lot of things like that. So uh, I haven't had that issue. Uh, we should we should backtrack though here a little bit because <laughs> there was a picture this week that dropped online. It was apparently posted on Facebook by John Darnell. Of the Mountain Goats, a, friend, a Facebook a, friend of mine. Is he okay? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, he's not a Facebook friend of mine, and he won't be <laughs> after I talk about this. But uh, it's a photo of him and Lin Manuel Miranda of Hamilton fame, and uh, John Darnielle revealed that he and Lin Manuel Miranda have been sharing early drafts of their songs for like the past decade. So, like when John Darnielle writes his latest song about pro wrestling or death metal bands or like some other mountain goatsy type topic. He ships it off to Lin-Manuel Miranda who gives his notes. Conversely, when Lin, when Lin-Manuel Miranda writes a song for, uh, uh, you know, some Disney film, I'm trying to like, what was the Disney film? I should know this. I'm a parent. I've seen this film a million <laughs> times. Um, I can't think of, Oh, it's uh, Encanto. 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 Yeah. Yes. when, L-M-N, L-M-M, L-M-M. See, it, there's no easy way to say this guy's name. This no. is one of the many annoying things about him. When Lynn, <laughs> I'll say when Lynn is writing Encanto songs, he's shipping them off to John Darnielle for notes. Anyway, people were uh, gnashing their teeth over this. There's Mountain Goats fans who maybe aren't Hamilton fans, and they were like, why is our hero hanging out with uh, Lynn over here? Um I have to say I love this story because I'm not a fan of either artist. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like I had to be offended or I had to defend somebody in this case. Um, you know, we 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 have a mailbag uh, <laughs> letter uh, about the weaker thens, uh, a yay or nay, that we've bumped like three or four times just because we've run out of time in our episodes. And I feel like we're not going to get to it 
And maybe it's a good thing because I feel like we're going to alienate a segment of our audience if we ever talk about the weaker thens. Absolutely. Cause, cause I mean, I, it's, it's very I, much in that LMN mountain goat sort of uh, Venn yeah. diagram. Well, yeah, because I wrote out a rant that also tossed some strays at the mountain goats uh, <laughs> in there as well. Um, two bands that I feel like I would like in a different universe perhaps, but uh, uh, the vocal style of John Darnielle and John K. Sampson, that's the Weaker Thens guy. Um, see, I'm not going to go into the rant right now. I'm just saying, <laughs> like, I, I just said I'm not going to do it. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I, I love the idea of John Darnielle and Lin-Manuel Miranda hanging out. I actually think that their songwriting styles are more alike than people want to admit. They're oh, absolutely. Both, John Darnielle, very theatrical, very concept-heavy. Um so yeah, I could see him being into like what Lin Manuel Miranda does, and vice versa. Yeah, I think that we talked about with Olivia Rodrigo that I'm not a huge fan of like songs that explain plot points, and that's like what Hamilton more or less is. I mean, look, people love it; they listen to it without watching the uh, stage production, but like the songs are about things that are actually happening in Alexander Hamilton. And similarly with like the Mountain Goats, it's very storytelling and olivia rodrigo kind of has that element as well uh yeah i just look I, I hope this you know ends up in like a version of the sunset tree where you know linwell miranda's like dropping bars like that immortal te- the stuff that got him stuffed into a trash can by immortal technique um i i'd be okay I, i'd be kind of up for that like let's just consolidate these two things which i <laughs> don't care much for but we'll we'll enjoy you know we'll we'll we'll, we'll I, I will I, I will endure them so I want to circle back to what you're saying before do you do you feel like Hamilton is still sacrosanct in the culture because I do feel like there was a moment in the mid-2010s where you saw so many think pieces about Hamilton where people were honestly like this is the greatest thing that's ever been created not just musical but like pop culture phenomenon people lost their shit over Hamilton. And now I feel like we've been in like this extended Hamilton hangover where people <laughs> think about like, oh my God, the things I did last night. I can't believe I said that about Hamilton. Like I'm kind of embarrassed. Like I feel like people now look at that as like the epitome of like, and I, I hate using this word because it's so overused, but like cringe, cringe hmm. culture of like the mid 2010s. I feel like Hamilton it's always brought up as like the epitome of that, like that sort of pre-Trump mm-hmm. earnestness that's like way too cute, you know, and just like way, uh, you know, way too in love with its own cleverness. You know, that, that to me is like what Hamilton signifies. But do you, do you feel like it's still something where if you're in mixed company, you have to be sensitive about Hamilton? Absolutely. I mean, you you said cringe. Um, I thought you were going with like Obama era, like because it is like the epitome of like late Obama, right? Uh, second term, and like all like how all this stuff about like art being like revolutionary and this like it imagines like a better world that like clearly did not come to pass. So I think that by and large, at least in our sphere, it's like not as sacrosanct as it used to be. But I'm telling you, like, and I this gets to the original reason why I brought up like, hey. You and your wife have been together more or less since 2006. Um, the Hamilton tote bag people, like, I encounter them at work. I encounter them just in day-to-day. Like, they're still out there. And 
they are like per, probably like the type of people who I have no idea that like Lizzo is facing lawsuits. You know, it's like that kind of person. You know what I mean? They're yeah, out there. You. They're totally yeah. out there. Well, you know, I said before I didn't want to alienate a segment <laughs> of our audience, but I think I'm going to risk doing that again because we're going to do a very short sports cast right now. So we're stopping IndieCast for a minute. We're going to go to SportsCast. If you're not a fan of SportsCast, I promise you this will just be two or three minutes. You can skip ahead. But we've got to talk. About the uh, about Milwaukee getting the worst NBA rapper of all time. Well, Dame, Dame Lillard going to Milwaukee is a wonderful thing. But we have to talk about the biggest <laughs> intersection of sports and pop culture that happened this week. And that is Taylor Swift dating Travis Kelsey of the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, I'm just going to throw this out there. There's no way in hell this is for real. This is a pure marketing scheme. Taylor Swift showing up to a Chiefs game against the Bears, like the biggest Harlem Globetrotters versus Washington Generals type matchup that you could have, like just the chalkiest game. So you're going to be guaranteed to get a bunch of screen time cheering on, because you know Travis Kelsey guaranteed to score touchdowns mm-hmm. against one of the worst defenses in the league. Um, her big film, The Era's Concert, movie that's coming out in two weeks this cannot be a coincidence i mean am i am i just a cynical person who doesn't believe in love or or is this actually a real thing and if it isn't a real thing are we reaching a tip a tipping point with taylor swift like there's there's been a lot of taylor swift this year and i wrote a column earlier this year uh, asking music critics someone was asking me you know is taylor swift she's so big right now when is she going to start fading you know, because everyone fades. You don't stay at the top forever. And I actually don't know the answer to that question because she is a phenomenon that I think is historic at this point. Just the length of time that she has been hugely famous and hugely successful. It's it's almost unprecedented. There's really no, not many artists who have like been on top this long. You know, like Michael Jackson had about a dozen years, late 70s to like early 90s. You know, Prince, basically the 80s. Madonna... Madonna would be like the other person. Like she had about like a twenty year run where she was having big hits and was very famous, like from the early eighties to the early two thousands. Um, but I don't know. Like this Travis Kelsey thing, I just feel like this could blow up on her. It seems like a little too much for me. Well, you brought up Madonna, and like Madonna was dating like Dennis Rodman, um, and Travis Kelsey could not be. More. Also, first off, like this might be kind of a like a, a fake relationship, and you can also be a cynical person who doesn't believe in love. You know, both things can be true, but I I, I don't see this blowing up because I one of the things that I think frustrates us so much about Taylor Swift is that like everything that she does is so well orchestrated, and I don't if she were to date someone in the NFL. This could not be better chosen because, you know, Travis Kelsey, if you haven't seen, I'm sure if you've been on Twitter in the past week or so, you've seen his like tweets from like 2012 uh, popping up about how much he loves like stepbrothers and electric feel. You know, he's a he's a known goofy white dude, but not super famous. And he's not a quarterback. I cannot stress how important that is, because, you know, if for some reason the Chiefs who are playing in a division with the least serious teams in the NFL somehow start fading you know, they can't blame it on her the way like, you know, Cowboys fans got all up on Tony Romo when he started dating Jessica Simpson before the playoffs. And, you know, uh, I was just a little disappointed. Like I I really wish this could be more fun if Taylor Swift was like dating someone like a completely ass NFL team, 
You know, I want to see her sit through like one of those Steelers Browns Thursday night games when like, you know, everyone's getting injured and it's like 22 to 16. Um, you know, and whether she would do you know, whether she could live up to the standards of the ultimate QB wife girlfriend Giselle Bündchen who after the Patriots lost the Super Bowl, she like started talking shit about the wide receivers. I mean, is Taylor going to do that like for Kadarius Tony when he's dropping more passes? I I mean, I, I, I guess just the bigger issue is like, is this what's going to send you to like watching college football now? Now that no. everything in the NFL is going to be <laughs> viewed through a prism of Taylor Swift puns and like Dion's got every college football team making Dusty Rhodes promo reels. Yeah, I've been I've been watching more college football actually this year in large part because of Dion. Uh, and by the way, God, we're making sports casts longer than I <laughs> promised. But the Oregon coach, he's like on my list with like Nick Sirianni as like my most disliked coaches <laughs> in the game right now. Like that that pregame speech he gave. I know you got to like hype up your team, right. but like the flash versus substance thing. Like I'm sorry. We're Team Flash. <laughs> yeah, that just, it's like you're wearing like green uniforms for crying out loud. Like you are not, it's, it's like the most ostentatious uniform in college football. Like give me a break. Um, getting back to Kelsey and, and uh, Taylor Swift, you know, it just rubs me the wrong way that she's like uh, bandwagoning on like the Super Bowl champion. Like it is such, yeah. you, you alluded to this, it's like, Oh yeah, you're gonna you're gonna date the tight end on like one of the best teams in the league, like the defending Super Bowl champion. I would respect it more if she was dating like Zach Wilson, you know, like <laughs> you know, just a terrible QB in uh, New York, you know, like then I would be like, okay, this doesn't seem like so managed to me, you know, like you're you're just making a bad decision. And I, yeah. and I can get behind that, but this just seems like, oh, Taylor Swift is a winner again. Like, you're, right. you're dating this winner guy, and you're you're watching him beat a terrible Bears team. Yeah, there, there was I a game know. That was a game that was like 70 to 20 this past weekend, and that was not the least competitive game. That was the Chiefs-Bears. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Let's end SportsCast. We're right. out of SportsCast. <laughs> We're getting back into IndyCast. Um this will be the segue, too. We have to do a fantasy draft update. Uh, I am the Miami Dolphins at this point. Like, I am scoring big time. You haven't gotten on the board yet. Like, none of your albums are out. Nope. Four out of my five albums are out. Uh, this week, Arm & Hammer dropped. And Slow Pulp, the really cool, up-and-coming Chicago indie band, uh, they put out their record this week. Arm & Hammer, uh, 85. Metacritic score so far that might change. You know, more reviews might be coming in. Slow Pulp has an eighty-two, both very respectable scores. My total score, and we're adding this to Olivia Rodrigo, who has a ninety-one, just excellent first-round pick by me. Mitski was my second-round pick. She has a ninety. I have three hundred and forty-eight points right now. I have one more album left. Mm -hmm. So if and it's Marnie Stern. And I'm going for the like middle-aged guy at the publication <laughs> who's gonna give it like an automatic eight at least, or you know, or auto, you know, like four stars. Yeah. So I think I'm counting on like an eighty plus from from her, which would put me, you know, what like around four thirty or so. So if you divide that by five, I'm gonna do this quick. 
just to figure out like what average you're gonna need uh, to beat me. Four thirty divided by five. I'm looking at eighty six, right? Eighty six. You're gonna you're gonna need an average of eighty six mm. probably to beat me. Do you think you can do that? You think you have the firepower? Well, I think that my first shot across the bow will come next week with Sufjan dropping and. God, I hate saying this, but like since the <laughs> since uh, you know it was revealed, he has this like total like medical catastrophe that like makes it almost difficult for him to walk again. Maybe that's gonna like amplify the urgency. Oh man, of the praise! I know it's so like it's so fucking cynical. So it's like it's like the inverse of injuries in sports. Exactly. Like, like you don't want an injury in sports, but you might want an injury. In the Metacritic race. Yeah. And now if I had known that like Year of the Knife were going to be releasing an album, that, that has several elements. Like first, like they had a catastrophic uh, vehicle incident that like, you know, the singer almost died. They're putting out a new record. It's like metal. So only a few people are going to be reviewing that. Um, yeah. I, 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 you know, if it had, I had known, but like, I, I'm still pretty confident um, that, you know, I'm going to make it up on the back end. But uh, we'll see. You know, well, I, Sufjan I think, is your number one pick. He's that, gonna yeah. have he's gonna have to give you ninety. Yeah, or more. I think he's gonna do numbers. That album's really good. So you think it's gonna go ninety? I hope so. <laughs> I don't uh, know. No, I, I I I took that one because I didn't want you to steal it. I think that uh, Jamila Woods and Lorraine are gonna be my big numbers doers. Well, you have Taylor Swift, the re-release of nineteen eighty nine, and I could see that being mid ninety. Uh, I, you know, unless again, we're going to get the backlash going, waiting for the backlash. I mean, she's already survived her backlash. That's what's crazy about Taylor Swift. Yeah. She had the reputation era and it seemed like, okay, she, yeah, she's on, she's on the decline. And then all of a sudden Scooter Braun scoops up her, you know, her rights to her songs. And she has this crazy renaissance after that. And it's just bigger than ever. So it's like, is she going to have another backlash? I don't know. Maybe she's already had her backlash and it's just, you know, a boulder <laughs> rolling down a mountain that's never ending. Um, all right. So we'll see. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I want you to get on the board here. You need some albums to come out because this is, this is <laughs> missing drama right now in our fantasy draft. It's going to be basically. Next couple me. of weeks. Yeah, yeah. Next couple of weeks. We got, we are, we, we're going to make it a game. It's like you, you all okay. your starters are playing like the 10 o'clock or I'm using Pacific time, the, the one o'clock game. And then all mine are like the four o'clock in the Monday nighters. So. Right. I'm worried that I'm like the Atlanta Falcons and you're the <laughs> Patriots. I, I'm that's worried right. that that's going to be the situation here. We'll see what happens. Um, let's get to uh, the albums we're going to be talking about today. Both albums that are out today. Uh, there's a new Wilco record. It's called Cousin. And there's a new Animal Collective record called Isn't It Now? 40-somethings are so stoked that we're bringing us back to dry Oh, land. my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Yes. The 46-year-old the, the indie rock fan community rejoicing here. Um, we're grouping these albums together because... They're both legacy acts that have been around for a while. Um, I'm going to ask you a question. How many albums does Wilco have, would you say, if you had to guess? Are we talking like straight up studio albums? Yeah, not EPs or live records, just studio records. I'm going to guess 11. You're very close. It's 12. Ah. Now, how many do Animal Collective have? Not Shit. EPs, not live records, just studio records. I mean, does Camp Fire songs count? Um, 
gosh. And they, they, their, their catalog is way, I'm going to guess 12 only because uh, 12 this is exactly right. No yeah. 12 is, so, so Wilco and animal collective both have, this is their 12th record in both camps. And we're exploring an interesting phenomenon here because, you know, I like both of these records, but I would also say that I'm not terribly excited about them. And I was thinking about how with the Legacy Act, you know, we often talk about, you know, bands, they start to fade over time. They're not as, as exciting and that they're not as challenging, whatever. But I was looking at it from a different perspective, from like a listener perspective and how there are examples of bands. And I would say that these are both examples that would fit under this, who are still making good music and they're putting out uh, records that I think show that they're trying to do something different. You know, Wilco is working with an outside producer, Kate Laban. They don't do that very often. Animal Collective, there's like a 21-minute song on this Hell record. Hell yeah. This is Hell crazy. yeah. So that's like, you know, that's pretty out there. Um, but I just wonder, like, is there like a number of albums from an artist where you just start to get fatigued? And it doesn't matter how good the record is. You're just not in a place where you actually want new records from them anymore. Because I was thinking about like myself, and I love discographies, and I love I'm I'm a completist. I like digging into bodies of work, but there actually aren't that many artists where I'm always excited about their new album. Even bands that I love, I eventually feel like, you know what? You've served me enough courses of this meal. I think I'm good. Hmm. And again, it's not a judgment on the bands. It's more about me and like what your tolerance level is for new music from artists, even artists that you love. You know, we're going to be talking about two of the greatest bands of all time in our next segment, Replacements and Talking Heads. Replacements have uh, seven albums and Talking Heads have eight albums. And I wonder like, is seven or eight like the perfect number? I mean, even for those bands, like not all their albums are good. Like the, yeah. you, could, you, could, you could kind of drop off the last couple uh, in both cases, but does any of this make sense? Like, I'm not even sure if I'm landing on this. This is something I'm kind of like working through in my mind. If there's like a number of albums that's kind of perfect for an artist, and if you go over that, it's hard to maintain like an interest in what they're doing. I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, uh, like Wilco... They, they are they are a band like I said this in the outline. I was like wondering aloud if they're like underrated or underappreciated at this point, and I know they're not. But like when you think about like how um, consistent and like how much they try to change from album to album, um, you know what more could you want out of a band thirty years deep? And yet I kind of agree with you. It's like I can't see myself getting you know, that stoked over, you know, album 12, which it feels like way more. Um, I mean, I will continue to check out both of these bands just because they've made evolution of their sounds so much a part of their whole thing. But um, I, I think we're just talking about like the inexorable march of time and aging and, uh, you know. But it's not about the band. It's like the listener, uh, I think. Oh, I of think course. As, as a listener, sometimes... It's just hard to hang in. With Wilco, I will say, their previous record, Cruel Country, I like quite a bit. And that is a yeah. record I've listened to a lot. And I think I put it on my year-end list. It might have been like in the top 15 or 20. Um, and the thing I like about that record is that it's Wilco playing live in the studio. 
and it is the closest that they've come to replicating what they sound like on stage on a record. Because for the most part, like especially since like Star Wars or so, they've been making records that are much more sparse, mm-hmm. spookier, pared back. And I like those records. And I think that in a lot of ways, this latest record, Cousin, is reverting back to that aesthetic that you hear on records like Schmilko and Ode to Joy. And there's some songs on this record I, I like quite a bit, but I have to admit that like the more robust live sound of Cruel Country is more of what I want from Wilco. And that might be why this latest album isn't quite hitting me in the same way as Cruel Country did. With Animal Collective, it's an interesting thing with them because they're making the most conventional records of their career at this point. You know, that 21-minute track aside, which is essentially a suite of songs. It's like a big prog rock epic with like, you know, probably like four or five different bits in it, something like that. Um, They're making very hooky, accessible songs. You heard that on Time Skiffs, which is the record they put out last year, and then on this uh, new one, uh, Isn't It Now, as well. And it is interesting to hear them almost like a semi- normal psych rock band like you know you you mentioned electric feel before i mean there are songs on here that kind of remind me of like that era of mgmt like just like a fun infectious kind of pop psych type thing and i really like it when it's on but it is a thing with wilco i'm sorry with animal collective where you know they there's that mind-blowing aspect that their music had Mm-hmm. You know, in the 2000s, where you felt like, I've never heard anything like this. This is so unpredictable. Like, what, like, what even is this? And these records definitely don't have that. I don't know, even if, like, these albums were weirder, I don't think they'd have that. And again, I think that's kind of on the audience. Because the shock of the new is gone no matter what. You know, like, as you get deeper into a career, even if you're writing good songs that ability to just like knock someone out because I've never heard a record like uh, Feels or I've never heard a record like Yankee Hotel Foxtrot or whatever. You know, you, you can't do that no matter how good your records are. Um, so I don't know. It's just an interesting thing being on a journey with a band over the course of like 10, 15, 20 years, you know, and, and how those things change over time. You know, even if the bands themselves haven't changed as much as you think they have in your own head you know i'm i'm thinking you with your comparison of animal collective at least latter-day animal collective to uh mgmt i'm wondering like there is a non-zero chance that travis kelsey has heard merryweather post pavilion uh or maybe he'll like the new one i don't know like i i, I maybe he'll get into animal collective and that that'll be you know it'll be this strange transfer of power and then we'll get like the swifty contingent of animal collective but you know you you mentioned how this is like an animal collective album is like i don't know like weirdly conventional at this point and when i think back to their 2000s run which is some of the most like fucking incredible music i've ever heard in my entire life i think there was like this a symbiotic thing where they were, you know, constantly evolving, constantly changing, constantly challenging, um, you know, convention, but they were also like one of the most celebrated bands in indie rock. So it really felt like you're, 
you know, riding this wave, you know, like where this is where the most interesting shit is happening. And I don't think we see that as much currently for a vast number of reasons, which we've explored a lot on this, uh, on this podcast. But, um, yeah, the, I didn't really like time skiff as much as I thought I was supposed to, you know, I've been lobbying for a, a reappreciation of animal collective for a long time, because for a while they were seen as this symbol of like, you know, blog rock or 2000s indie rock excess where it's like i can't believe pitchfork tricked us into liking animal collective as if that was the only reason um but you know it, it like i like that magic i like that unpredictability and um you know i don't go to animal collective albums for the songs you know for the most part um i do go to wilco for the songs like i know even if they were just to make the most basic like sit down jeff gets out the guitar you know some tasteful drums i'm gonna get something out of the songs but i need animal collective to like really push uh against like what it is that they did before like i really think they need to make their not need to i would appreciate if they made their embryonic you know right now i think they're more in the what flaming lips did when they just like here here's the uh here here's like the eighth iteration of yoshimi you're gonna like that right so you um, want w- like an you want like a noisy evil yes. sounding record. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, again, I I I I mean, I I like Time Skips and I like this record too. They don't feel essential to me and Not maybe that's the maybe that's what we're dancing around here is music that's good but it doesn't feel like you have to have it. You know, mm-hmm. like, like this album need to exist, you know. <laughs> and I just feel like you know, we've talked about legacy bands recently. We were talking, you know, someone asked this, like, how do you define a legacy band? And it is, in my estimation, a band that has already earned their stripes. So no matter what they do next, they're still going to be able to sell tickets. They're still going to have a good reputation because they made four, five, six records that are great. And they don't really have to worry about what they do after that. And that's a great place for a band to be. But it is the double-edged sword is what we're talking about now where even new albums that I think are good, they just don't seem essential because it's like, well, I already have seven, eight Wilco records that I love, you know, like, is this going to be in the rotation for me moving forward? I actually would say that Cruel Country has a shot at being in there uh, more so than, than, than this record. Um, yeah. Animal Collective I mean, the most shocking thing that they could do would be to like, you know, become big because Travis Kelsey loves them and then Taylor Swift <laughs> ends up on an Animal Collective record. Like that would be like the craziest thing they could do yeah. at this point. It'd be the most surprising thing because like what else could they do really that would be surprising other than, you know, because like what you're talking about, like the evil noisy record. I mean, they've done that too before, but maybe that's just for you personally the aesthetic that you most want from them. Absolutely. And yeah, I think what we're like the kind of undertone of this entire conversation is if like, you know, we, I can speak for myself that a big part of like my, you know, identity forming years was being like a, a huge animal collective fan and being a huge Wilco fan. And if they're not seen as essential, am I essential? Um, well, no, I, I see, <laughs> well, the thing with Wilco, they're still like one of the best live bands. Oh yeah. I'm seeing them in a couple of weeks and I cannot be more stoked. And uh, again, that's why I'll go back to what I said about Cruel Country. 
you know, like with Animal Collective, you want to you want them to make like the evil noisy record. With Wilco, I want them to make like the live in the studio record. You know, which I think what Cruel Country was. And like I don't know, maybe they recorded live in the studio for uh, Cousin, but it doesn't have the same kind of robustness. You know, where you got like the strummy guitars and you have like the pedal steel and mm-hmm. and then they're kind of they, they they were. There's a couple songs on on Cruel Country that go in sort of like a Grateful Dead direction, like it's jammy and kind of like a cosmic country type sense. And I mean, that's the pivot. I I mean, that is the pivot that I'm still waiting for them to do to just embrace full on being like a new Grateful Dead type band. Because Animal Collective got there first, I guess. <laughs> Well, yeah, from a different direction, from yeah. like the Dark Star direction. I'm lo- I'm talking more like the American Beauty style Grateful Dead, which they flirted with in the past. You know, they've mm-hmm. played with Bob Weir. They've you know been at jam band festivals, but I just feel like Jeff Tweedy. There's something in him that won't go full jam band. Like he can't allow himself <laughs> to do that. You know, like the punk rocker in him won't go fully in that direction. I would love them to to make a record that just totally embrace that i think cosmic uh, 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 cruel country i think flirted with that i'm still waiting for them to go full on with that if, if they did that i would be totally on board with that wilco record we'll see if they ever make that and that's why you have to allow bands to make that 13th record you can't stop at 12 <laughs> that's true that's true and, and again i just want to reiterate like i i want wilco to keep making records i want animal collective to keep making records even if i'm not totally excited buy it i i i'd like them being creative it seems like they're doing what they want to do and there is always that possibility with these groups that they will knock you out so yes please do not construe this as oh i don't want them to make records anymore <laughs> this is really a me not them type situation is what i think i was trying to say before all right well anyway let's talk about bands that are even older than <laughs> wilco and animal collective we're going to talk about The Replacements and Talking Heads because both of these bands, they're having a moment right now. Uh, the mid-80s are back. Uh, you've got the Tim box set, Let It Bleed edition that came out uh, earlier this month. Uh, it's been getting great reviews. I wrote about it. My piece actually ran in August. I talked to Tommy Stinson about it. Uh for those who aren't familiar, they ended up doing a remix of the album. Tim is known for having just a terrible mix. And I love the record, so I came to love the mix. But it's without question that the remix that they did is very well done. It basically makes it sound like the replacement sound on stage. You know, So if you want like bigger guitars and more robust drums, this is going to be the Tim for you. So that is been garnering like a lot of conversation people love that box set and then with the talking heads you have the imax re-release of stop making sense their classic 1984 concert film it uh, premiered at the toronto international film festival and now it's all over the country i actually saw it this week it was incredible i mean i love that movie anyway but uh and i had seen it in a theater years ago but to see it in IMAX, remastered, just inc- incredible sound. Uh, it, was, it was just fantastic. Um, now, both of these bands broke up in 1991. Really? And we all know, yeah, they both broke up in 91. Very interesting year. I mean, obviously, that's the year of Nevermind. You know, it's the changing of the guard. Uh, 
Um, and we all know that you don't care, Ian, about music released before 1992. And so, that's generous. <laughs> so I'm curious, um, what do you think about these bands? And do you feel like, like where, what do you feel like is their contemporary relevance at this point? All right. So to, to, to address this question, I'm going to just, if you, if you allow me to indulge in maybe the most embarrassing story I've ever told on this podcast. So we got to start by remembering some guys, uh, kindness. If you're like a 2012 uh. PBR type dude, you'll remember this guy. He was kind of like a quasi industry plant. Like he had incredible hair and, I was listening to this album and like I would I, there was this one song that stood out and I was like shocked uh at like how good the lyrics are and like how this like really deep emotional undertow that was completely absent from this like stuff that sounded more like kind of a, a like a boneless version of Twin Shadow or whatever and I'm, and I and I brought this up to some of the older heads at Pitchfork the song was called Swingin' Party I did not know it was a cover <laughs> And I'm like, how fucking embarrassing uh, is that? Because like that is the same year that like I raved about Celebration Rock, which is an album that like clearly would not exist without the replacements. So um, I think it's interesting with the replacements in that they inform so much of the music I love and identify with, and I could talk about them intelligently and in reviews and whatnot. But like. <sighs> I thought about this as you were publishing your Martin Scorsese uh, film list where it's like, like a, like you've seen that many movies, like I'm jealous, but there are certain like, I don't know, movies or bands or books that if you don't read them in the super formative years of your life, it's like really hard to revisit them because their influence is so ingrained that you can almost like avoid it. Like I first saw Pulp Fiction in 2017. What? Uh, yeah, I know, right? Where were you in 94? <laughs> I just missed it, and, like, I never bothered to, you know, check it out. And then, like, I watched it, and it's like, oh, okay, this explains everything. And similar with, like, Velvet Underground, like, Sonic Youth was kind of like that. And, you know, like, look, Alex Chilton, even before, like, I had, you know, really dove into the catalog, it was probably my favorite song of the 80s because, like, it sounds a lot like the Hooters and We Dance. But, um... Well, then why would... Isn't And We Dance, then, your favorite Song of the eighties, I guess. Yeah, you still want, like yeah, that's that's your favorite song of the eighties. Yeah, it's got the, the it's, Yeah, that's like the Philly hoagie water ice version of like the Midwest replacements, I guess. But um, yeah, and but you know, both of them made nineties alt rock hits. I think the Hooters guy went on to co-write uh, J- Joan Osborne's One of Us. You know, Paul wow, Westerberg had hit. Yeah, um, but yeah, I, with the replacements, like I don't have the same attachment to. Um, you know, their work, I guess that like other people might like, especially like all I knew about Tim was like, yeah, this album sounds like shit. Um, so when I listen to the new one, I'm like, wow, this, this sounds like it could have come out in 1994 or 2004. And you know, like, look, the songs are great. Um, they're undeniable. Um, I even have love for lay it down clown. Like I saw a lot <laughs> of people talking shit about that. Not because I think it's an incredible song, but, like, because I know it's about, like, Peter Buck buying Speed, which, right. how could you not love a song with, like, I don't give a shit if it's, like, a one-minute ambient instrumental. Um, so, yeah, I mean, with the replacements, like, you would, re- it's it's sort of like how I, I think, like, when people would interview Interpol back in 2002, and they'd say, like, yeah, we never really heard uh, Joy Division, or, like, The Strokes would talk about, yeah, like, television that's like not really what we listen to 
you know, th- that's sort of how I am with the replacements. Um, and with the talking heads, I, love remain in light never really went much deeper than that. Like I heard the hits and I understood their influence and like how, you know, they all like basically all tributaries of art rock lead back to that. Um, but yeah, I, I, even when I was like religiously trying to scour the uh, Rolling Stone and Pitchfork and spin best of the 70s and 80s list, like just never dug deep. I, I just wonder sometimes, like, how do people find so much time to like, you know, watch all 30 Martin Scorsese movies or like, you know, dig deep in all the uh, Talking Heads albums? I, I just wonder what I'm doing with my life. Well, while I'm doing that, you are listening to like, you know, super obscure emo bands or, you know, stuff like that. So, like, we all spend our time doing different things that we're into. Um, It's interesting with Talking Heads because there was a little kerfuffle online this week. People were talking about Stop Making Sense, and I saw some younger people uh, talking about how they feel like Talking Heads are overrated. And it's an interesting thing because I think with Talking Heads... This is similar to the band with The Last Waltz. Like, Stop Making Sense, in a lot of ways, defines who they are to the casual listener. Like, when you think about Talking Heads, you think about David Byrne in the big suit, you know, dancing with, like, a lamp. All that stuff. Jogging on stage. (laughs) That whole act in 1983. Um, And it is a version of that band that, you know, even as I'm watching Stop Making Sense in IMAX and loving the movie, I did think in my head, like, this is very 80s. And this is something that I could see a younger person not liking at all. Because if you look at modern pop music or modern indie music, that version of Talking Heads is, in a lot of ways, like the opposite of where we're at right now. It's very theatrical. It's very up, like extremely energetic, Lots of people smiling and jumping up and down. And again, <laughs> I love it. I think the music is great. But I could see someone coming into that movie and just being like, this is way too much for me. You know, so if, if that's you, I, I get it. I would say that with Talking Heads. And I, I, when I say you, I don't mean you. I'm talking like the, the proverbial you out there, like a younger <laughs> listener, like the 21-year-old indie rock fan who's going to watch Stop Making Sense because older people won't shut up about it and it maybe it leaves you cold for that reason. Um, I would say that like if you listen to like the late 70s albums, like the ones they made with Brian Eno, like more songs about buildings and food, Fear of Music, and then leading up to Remain in Light in 1980, I think those records are, are, are a bit different. They're artier. They're a little more, I think... It's easier to connect what's going on now to those albums than what's in Stop Making Sense. I think, in a weird way, Fear of Music, which is like this chilly, interest, like, like introverted record, like the opposite of Stop Making Sense, like, I almost feel like that might be a better introduction for like the young listener who's curious about Talking Heads. Because, I, I, again, Stop Making Sense, I think, is an amazing movie, but I could see it being too much for people who don't have any other connection to this band. Um, as far as the replacements go, they just seem like a band that, even if you've never listened to the replacements, like if you are a four-piece rock band that likes beer and <laughs> flannel shirts 
and like writing lyrics that are like funny and sad at the same time. Like you owe something to the replacements, like whether you know it or not. I mean, they're they're a band I think similar to the Beatles in that way that like kind of like every band that like seeks to write their own songs and make ambitious albums. You owe something to the Beatles, even if you think you don't like the Beatles, just because they're so fundamental to creating the template of like what that is. And like for, you know, alternative rock or indie rock, rock bands, you know, Mm. that have some sort of like classic rock feel to them. Like that's what the replacements are. Like there's so many bands that you look at now and I'm like, yep, there's a little bit of replacements in here whether they know it or not, you know, it's just such a pervasive thing. So like, I think replacements in a way are more timeless than talking heads are talking heads to me are much more of their era. Whereas the replacements, I feel like there's probably always going to be a certain kind of person. Yeah. Who gets into that band. Yeah. You know, the replacements, like, you know, both, both artists created a type of band, but like the replacements, and I mean, I think you could speak more to this as someone who grew up in the Midwest. The replacements created a type of guy, you know, right. like, and, and, and like and, and an internal type. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> because they have a big female following as well. Like one thing about the replacements is, you know, I, I see people sometimes like they roll their eyes at the uh, mystique of mm-hmm. the replacements. That sort of like lovable loser thing. Which, you know, that does get heavy-handed. And, you know, Bob Mayer, my friend, in his book Trouble Boys, I think he dispels a lot of that. Because you read his book and you're just like, wow, these were just dysfunctional <laughs> guys from, like, in a, like, from abusive backgrounds. And, like, there's nothing lovable about it. It's just really kind of sad and self-destructive. Um, having said all of that, the replacements would not be as relevant now and they wouldn't be as popular with younger generations if they didn't have that mystique. Like, there's so many bands from the 80s that are good that, like, no one remembers now because they didn't have a backstory to them that you could latch on to. And for all, again, of, like, the skepticism that you can have of, like, rock and roll mythology, like, mystique matters, you know? And I think that is a big part of, like, why some bands and artists are remembered and others are not. You know, when you're coming into a band, you need a narrative that pulls you in, that adds another dimension to the music that you're listening to, that makes it mean a little bit more. And, you know, The Replacements, just being such a fuck-up band, (laughs) and you have this record that, like, has great songs on it, but it gets screwed up at the last minute, you know, in the mixing process, and then, you know like 30 years later or almost 40 years later, it's miraculously repaired. You know, it's like a great story. And that's like how people get into this band. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I I can't imagine like the replacements being bigger, you know, like that was always a thing around them. It's like, Oh, if they only like could get it out of their own way. But like, to me, the mythos of the replacements and the reason they resonate so much is that, like their fucking up and their self sabotage is like a load bearing part of the whole thing, you know. The songs are great and so forth, but so much of like, even to the degree that I've like interacted with them, it's like there's a sense of like failure and just like being like just getting close enough to realize how far away you are. Now, you brought up the comparison of uh, I want to switch it back to the Talking Heads for a bit because you brought up the comparison with uh, the band. Um, you know, Last Waltz, which 
Which one had more drugs in it? I don't know. I think the Talking Heads is like they, they're. I think they're just kind of doing it natural. I think they're just like that, you know. Yeah, you know, I was I was thinking about that actually as as I was watching it because the joke was not making sense. <laughs> is that they're so coked up, you know, because they're so energetic. But actually, this time watching it, I was just thinking about all the time that they must have put in at the gym for that. Like David Byrne. You seen the David like, Byrne training videos? Well, yeah, of him dancing and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. And you know, he's such a skinny guy in the movie, so it's not like he's, you know, like pumping iron or anything. <laughs> but just to be able to like jog on stage and then sing, mm-hmm. it just seemed like how is he? You know, and everyone's doing that. Like Alex Weir, who's like one of the uh, supporting uh, musicians in the Talking Heads at that time. He's like doing high kicking, <laughs> like running <laughs> while playing like these crazy guitar licks. I mean, they just—they must have been jogging like ten miles a day at the time. So I don't think that they were doing drugs. I don't think that like their hearts would have exploded. I think <laughs> if they were, you know, doing blow, uh, you know, off the amps between songs. The last waltz. I mean, there's just a variety <laughs> of drugs going on. Yeah. There. I mean, the, the infamous thing about like the cocaine booger on Neil Young that they had to like cut out of the movie. I mean, that's just like one small example of. The debauchery going on during that film. Yeah, I think I, I think with uh yeah, with, with talking heads, it's like kind of more of like a family friendly sort of energy, which, you know, I guess would be less likely to resonate with, you know, younger audiences. But we here here's the one thing I gotta know about, you know, the talking heads as far as you know, you being a lifelong fan of it. Um when did this must be the place become their most popular song? Because I've seen that like referenced at so many weddings. But it seems like a like a past five to ten year sort of thing. Yeah, that that seems like something. You know, it's like uh, what's that pavement song now? That's Harness like your hopes. Most, yeah, it seems something like that. Like where, you know, I could see uh, this must be the place being very playlist friendly and very algorithm friendly. Like I feel like that's just a song that uh, a lot of people got pointed to. Uh, like on streaming platforms. I mean, I think it's longer than five or ten years, but I mean, when I first got, I mean, I got into the Talking Heads like after they broke up, essentially. Like when I was in, when I was a teenager, and I was going through that thing of reading music books and going into music history and getting into them and stuff. Um, so I don't know. I didn't have a sense that that was like the big song for them necessarily. But yeah, it's become like a like you said, like a wedding standard at mm-hmm. this point. And it, it it probably is like their most famous song at this point. More than Once in a Lifetime? I, I mean, it, I, you, you're, it probably is. I don't know. I feel like it's overtaken Once in a Because, like, again, like when I was growing up and I first got into them, like Once in a Lifetime was like their most famous song. Absolutely. But I feel like this must be the places now supplanted it just because it has that, like, wedding song aspect to it where – people who don't care about the talking heads they like that song because yeah. they think it's sweet i think it maybe it's more like a hallelujah than a harness your hopes because like it was always <laughs> big but now it's just like taken taking a different sort of turn but look i guess it shows that it's at least resonating with people who are you know under the age of 45 46 yeah it's interesting with talking heads because you know that song is taken in such a sort of earnest way 
and it goes against a little bit like what they were like at the time. I think there was an irony to Talking Heads. Absolutely, cer- yeah. Certainly, like in the David Byrne, uh, you know, the way he wrote and the way he presented himself, there was always this, I think, ironic detachment going on in his songs. I mean, like one of my favorite Talking Heads songs is Heaven, mm-hmm. and which is another song that you can interpret as a sweet song about being in love. But you could also interpret it as a song that is commenting on like how we conceive of religion and like how yeah. <laughs> the way we talk about the afterlife, it's actually like a really boring place. You mm-hmm. know, so you can do either interpretation of that. I tend to do the more romantic interpretation, but the other one is there too. And there's a lot of songs from that period where there's a slipperiness to them. Like that's how he wrote. And uh, but yeah, like that song being the song now that people love it, it it does recontextualize talking heads a bit as more of like this earnest you know happy band and then when you put it in the context of stop making sense which is again like just such a up movie it is so like happy you know it it does change like how i think they're remembered a little bit yeah, I mean, I think the big hits, like you look at, uh, you know, Once in a Lifetime, that is a very depressing song. And uh, yeah, I think there's just layers to it. It's a fascinating band, like one of a kind. Uh, I, It's sort of like, um, gosh, I really wish there were like, you know, big popular rock artists like pushing against the grain and like doing, you know, just mind expanding things like them. And maybe there are. I imagine the indie cast, whatever version of it exists in like 2053, maybe we'll be talking about like, I don't know, Del Water Gap or Two Door Cinema Club as like the talking heads of our time. We just don't realize it yet. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so I want to bring up a album that kind of quietly dropped uh, about a week ago from a band called Good Looking Friends. It's Wasted Now. Uh, they are, I don't know if I'm putting them on blast by calling them a Brooklyn emo band, but they're from Brooklyn, and they sound pretty emo, and yes, Brooklyn emo does exist. Um, you know, they don't have that descriptor in their band camp page. They say pavement, sad folk, but it's kind of emo. Anyway... Uh, I, you know, I've been following them since 2018 or so. They were more of a traditional twinkle revival type band. They've evolved into something more, you know, diverse. Uh, there's straight up emo stuff on here, but there's, you know, folkier kind of alt country songs. One called Shots and Beers. There's like a 73 second punk song and the whole thing's over in less than a half hour. Um, what I also like about this, it's kind of the opposite of the replacements where, you know, like you think of like the hard touring road dog band, but this seems more like a band that is really just in it for the love, you know, might not tour beyond the tri-state area. Um, and it's just like a really enjoyable, like comfort food type album. If you like, uh, you know, the kind of stuff I like, you know, kind of pavement leaning, but not totally into that parquet courts territory. Um, yeah, there's going to be quite a few albums over the next couple of weeks that, you know, hit that 2013 emo uh, pleasure zone. This just happens to be one of them. So good looking friends wasted now. The whole catalog is pretty good too. So, so I have a couple records I'm going to mention. The first is one of the records on my fantasy, uh, draft, uh, indie rock albums, uh, team, which is a record called yard by a Chicago indie band called slow pulp. I thought they were, I thought they were Wisconsin. 
Well, they're from Madison originally. They, okay. They're in Chicago now. Um, and this is a band, actually, I, I might end up talking about them more next week because I have a uh, an interview with the lead singer that's going to be running on Up Rocks next week. But uh, I just wanted to mention this record. Really good indie rock record. It's kind of like a big tent indie rock record, like the kind that they don't really make anymore and that there's like lots of different kinds of songs on there. There's like an alt country song. There's like some really kind of zippy guitar pop songs. There's like some more kind of folky songs. And they just seem like a band that has the potential to, I think, to be pretty big. And this record seems like something that a lot of people are going to get into as this year unfolds and they get a chance to hear it. So that's a really good record. Slow Pulp Yard. Check out my interview next week. I'll have more to say about them then. I also want to talk about uh, a record that isn't quite getting the same push as Yard, but I think is really worthy. It's a record called New Shadows by a singer-songwriter named Jerry David DeSica. And you may know him. He used to be in an indie folk band called Black Swans that uh, existed back in the aughts and early 2010s. And since 2012, he's been going solo. And I really like this record a lot. And he is working in an aesthetic that personally means a lot to me. Basically, he is emulating the records that like boomer era singer songwriters made in the 1980s so i'm talking about records like trans by neil young uh tunnel of love bruce springsteen i'm your man leonard cohen empire burlesque bob dylan these records where you had these older musicians working with synthesizers and drum machines and lush saxophone solos and they're trying to merge that new technology or what was new technology at the time with this sort of old school poetic sensibility. And he's obviously not the first person to bring this sound back. I mean, the most, I think, famous example of this would be Kaput, the Destroyer record from about a dozen years ago. I think John Mayer was working in this vein as well when he made Sob Rock. Uh, but Tasika, I think is really keyed into the perversity of a lot of those records, the sort of strange yet beautiful lushness of these records. And you can tell he's a student of that era and he has an eye for the fine points. And this isn't just some broad homage. It really does feel like a record that is connecting with like the beautiful strangeness of those records. And that beautiful strangeness exists on New Shadows. So definitely a record that, I feel like it's made for me and people like me. So I really dug it. And uh, if you are on my wavelength and Jerry David DeSica's wavelength, uh, you should definitely check it out. Yeah, Jerry Uh-oh. David DeSica is like an extremely Steve uh, recommendation corner name. Uh, yeah, I he love definitely it. looks the part. And yeah, that Slow Pope album is good too. It's just real, like I was saying, like comfort food. It just kind of hits all notes if you like indie rock. And it's, it's one of those albums that like I, I feel like is going to be like in my top 20 because I just listen to it so much, you know, as right. opposed to it like innovating or doing new stuff, you know? Yeah. And I think again, they're, they're going to be a band that I think a lot of people like and Absolutely. their first record, you know, did well. I mean, they, they, they released their first record during the pandemic, which uh, seems like a terrible time to launch a career, but it actually did pretty well, and you could see that they have a lot of momentum at this time. Uh, That about does it for this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news, reviews, and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 